mining the world's hotspots for novels today, Monday, February 4th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Residents of northern Mali emerge from life under the Islamist crackdown and wonder what's next. Also, the French spy novelist who seems to know an awful lot about real-life espionage. And later, the skeleton found under a parking lot in England turns out to be that of King Richard III. A novelist obsessed with Richard's story says his death was not pretty. He was carried back to Leicester naked, thrown over a pack horse, and this was an anointed king. He should have been treated a lot more reverently than that. Plus, a French law prohibiting women from wearing pants is finally struck down. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Vice President Joe Biden had praise today for France's military intervention in Mali. He hailed France's decisive action in ousting al-Qaeda-linked militants who had taken over much of the West African nation. Biden was speaking at a press conference in Paris with French President Francois Hollande. He said the U.S. and France have agreed that the military operations in Mali should be handed over to a coalition of African troops and ultimately the United Nations. We also uh, support the political process that France is leading to restore uh, a a democratic government in Mali. The president indicated uh, as well that we discussed uh, uh, the importance of working with our our regional partners uh, to counter terrorism across uh, North Africa and beyond. For now, French troops are making their way into cities in Mali that until recently were controlled by Islamist extremists. Today, a French-led convoy carrying food and military supplies arrived in Gao in northern Mali. Reporter Laura Lynch is with the convoy. She's covering the story for The World and the CBC. The market in Gao is testament itself to how life has changed since last week when the French and Malian sources swept the Islamists away. Women sell buckets of vegetables as men sit nearby, relaxing in the heat of the afternoon sun. When the Islamists were in control, women weren't allowed to work, let alone to be here on their own. But that doesn't mean things are back to normal just yet. Power is on for only five hours a day and there are shortages of fuel. The signs that proclaim the imposition of a harsh form of Sharia law are still in place, stark black and white reminders of who was in charge. Conta says people had their hands and feet amputated in a nearby field. He paid a price in a different way. The extremists moved into his hotel. I run one of the best hotels in Mali, he says, but there's been no work for nine months there. Now that the French have come, we're cleaning it and getting ready for customers. Conta and some others here, though, worry there could be more problems, so apparently do French forces. A 61-strong convoy of French military vehicles pulled out early yesterday, heading towards Gao. And as the trucks rolled through the towns and villages along the way, the people ran to the roadside. France, France, they shouted, and some waved French flags. Women clutching their babies were especially grateful. 
Wearing traditional bright dresses, they say they were beaten for dressing or standing the wrong way. For all the celebrating, though, there are signs of trouble. A roadside bomb on this route killed two Malian soldiers just days ago. French engineers in this convoy discovered another two and detonated them safely this morning before allowing the convoy to move forward. It suggests the rebel fighters may still be nearby, and this may be the start of a new phase, an insurgency that will be a different kind of fight. This French lieutenant who didn't want to be identified says their work may not be finished yet. I don't know if the war is over, but uh, what is sure is that uh, we have to stabilize uh, the area and uh, in order to preparing for the MISMA, for the African uh, troops. So we are, we are waiting here for this. Those troops from other West African nations may not be here for some time to come, meaning the French troops are staying put for now. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Gao, Mali. For more of our coverage of Mali, including Laura's blog post on the mixed feelings there regarding the French intervention, just head to theworld.org. Mali is clearly on the minds of the French these days, but there's another story that might be stirring political passions even more in France, and that is who's allowed to wear the pants in Paris. A 200-year-old law preventing Parisian women from wearing trousers has been struck from the books. You need to go back to November 1800 when a woman was prohibited from dressing like a man unless she received permission from the local police. Elaine Cholino is a Paris-based correspondent for the New York Times. So, so Elaine, this is one of those they never just got around to changing it laws. Parisian women have been pa- wearing pants for years and quite well, I might add. Why now, though? Why this change now? We have a socialist government now, and it's trying to do the right thing for women. Right now, you've got a, a, a bill going through the parliament to... Uh, legalize gay marriage. And I think this is just a, a side issue that kind of got caught up in this, where the um, France's Minister of Women's Rights finally just said, look, we should we should make it impossible to arrest a woman for wearing trousers in Paris. Now, I know President Hollande made a, made a great effort to include a lot of women in his cabinet. Did uh, any one of them kind of bring this up and say, hey, listen, as long as we're here, can we talk about this pants law? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the women in the cabinet go to work in pants anyway. And and one of the ministers was criticized for coming to the first cabinet meeting wearing pants. Uh, you have another minister who always wears flouncy skirts. And we also had a bit of a controversy over the weekend with the marathon gay marriage debate where some of the women came in, uh, mon Dieu, wearing a blue jeans, which is really a no-no. But uh, they were let in anyway. They don't have casual Saturday or Sunday in France. They don't. Not in the not in the National Assembly. Even the guys, all the all the guy deputies, had to come in in ties. Now I gather other attempts have been made to overturn the law. Why did they fail in the past? Well, I, back in 1892, uh, the law was modified so that if a, a woman was riding a bicycle or riding a horse. Uh, she could uh, wear her pants, but it, it, it kind of was, it took a long time to change uh, public opinion. If you can believe it, as late as 1972, a guard prevented Michelle Alliot-Marie, who, who is, has been a, a defense and foreign minister, uh, prevented her from entering the assembly building because she was wearing pants. And so what she said is, uh, sir, if my pants, bo- if my pants bother you, I'll take them off right now. <laughs> so it got her into the um, got her in. Uh, the other thing you should know is that you know I I've done a lot of research on this subject and uh, I've gone to actually to 
uh, as a serious observer of striptease, and I went to a striptease class. And uh, what you will learn in Striptease 101 is don't bother coming in, in pants because you'll never get them off. You really have to wear a skirt. Right. So is that, that that's a lesson you're directing or targeting at whom, Elaine? Uh, well, uh, that's for you to figure out, Marco. Uh, you, you know, if you have women who on their, their vacations to Paris want to come and take a striptease class, they should pack a skirt. Roger. Um, you write in a recent article, Elaine, that pants for French women are uh, a safe choice as compared to skirts. Explain what you mean by that. Well, this is really a serious as well as a frivolous subject because sexual harassment is still quite uh, rampant in France. And this issue came to the fore when there were uh, sex scandals in France, most notably the one involving Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the former head of the International Monetary Fund. And in some uh, uh, government offices, even, women do not want to come to work in a skirt because if they come dressed in a lovely skirt, they're going to get remarks and maybe even uh, get touched, which is something that would never be uh, approved of or or acceptable in the United States. Well, it's a seemingly anachronistic story with surprising relevance today. Absolutely. Elaine Cholino with the New York Times in Paris. Good to speak with you. Thanks. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you. There's something rotten in world soccer. That's according to European police officials who today unveiled their findings from an ongoing investigation. The inquiry focuses on an organized crime syndicate based in Asia and its alleged efforts to make money by betting on rigged soccer games all over the globe. One eyebrow-raising detail, officials say the rigged matches may have included some World Cup qualifying games. Here's more from the world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Hang on, because the numbers come at you fast. A total of 425 match officials, club officials, players, and serious criminals from more than 15 countries are suspected of being involved in attempts to fix more than 380 professional football matches. That was Rob Wainwright today, the head of the European Union police force. He was offering up the results so far of an 18-month-long investigation into match-fixing in soccer. It's a racket that Interpol's chief, Ronald Noble, says generates hundreds of billions of dollars a year in crooked bets. Bookmakers have revenues on the same scale. Think about it. The same scale as a Coca-Cola company. Noble was speaking at a conference on sports fixing in Rome a couple of weeks ago. The scale of graft and cheating is enormous. Like doping and cycling authorities say, match fixing in soccer is a threat to the very credibility and future of the sport. Investigators say that Asian betting syndicates have been buying off soccer players and refs to manipulate matches. They then place bets on games knowing what will happen. The most common bet, says sports writer Gabriele Marcotti, isn't on who will win or lose, but on the total number of goals scored. The so-called overs bet. So if it's over two and a half goals, um, you win. If it's under two and a half goals, uh, you lose. Which is how investigators catch their first whiff of something rotten, he says. Police watch the betting, which isn't illegal in many countries, and spot illogical trends, like if it's 0-0 at halftime, but lots of people continue betting over two and a half goals. If that happens, chances are someone's rigged the result. Soccer officials then go after players and refs, but Marcotti says they can't reach the masterminds. That's where you get on tricky ground. Uh, Certainly from a sporting perspective within the sphere of sporting justice, it's illegal, and then you you can get banned for it. Um, but obviously, you know, sports government bodies don't have the power to 
go and put people in prison. And also, they don't have the um, investigative powers of the police. You know, they, they can't issue subpoenas. They, they can't, you know, tap phones. They can't do surveillance. So I think, you know, as far as the, the criminal element is concerned, you really have to turn to the police. And in certain countries, the police simply do not see this as a priority. Today's announcement by European police didn't reveal any new information. It was more a summary of the ongoing investigation. But what captured world attention is just how widespread the problem seems to be. According to the authorities, it wasn't just those 380 games in Europe, but at least another 300 worldwide, from Latin America to Africa. For The World, I'm Cherry Haddon in Barcelona. Coming up after the break, the most famous French writer you've never heard of. But first, one thing we've heard a lot about recently, the growing pains of renewable power in Europe. Economic woes and low coal prices have combined to whip up a steep headwind for many green energy projects there. But it's hardly all bad news for European backers of green energy. Consider this. In the three months ending January 31st, wind power was the single largest source of electricity in Spain for the first time ever. That's according to the Spanish Wind Energy Association. In January alone, the association says Spanish wind farms produce more than six terawatts of electricity. That's more than a quarter of the country's power, according to Green Business. That outranks coal and nuclear power. And according to the association, it's enough to cover the electricity consumption of the majority of Spanish households. Still ahead, revisionist history in a parking lot on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The spy novel is a tricky genre to master, but the formula for success is simple. Keep drama taut and the history accurate. One French spy novelist, though, is eerily accurate, sometimes anticipating history before it's made. He's Gerard de Villiers. The 83-year-old has cranked out nearly 200 installments in his SAS spy series. The James Bond of the series is Austrian prince and CIA agent Malco Lange. The books have sold in the millions across the French-speaking world. From the covers, they look like the spy version of a bodice ripper. But it turns out intelligence officials around the world often dip into them for informal briefings on global hotspots. Robert Wirth wrote a profile of de Villiers for the New York Times Sunday magazine. He says the key to the author's success is that he uses the tools and the sources of good journalism to create his mass-market spy thrillers. It was about six months ago, a French friend recommended that I read one of his recent ones. And it was after I did that, I was impressed with it. And then I started talking to friends who work in the French diplomatic service. And was amazed to find that they had all read him, although, you know, in a somewhat shamefaced way. Well, the narratives, I mean, you can understand why they would uh, be compelled to read him. I mean, a recent book titled Les Fous de Benghazi, The Crazies of Benghazi, as in Benghazi, Libya, recounts the madness around a clandestine CIA post in Benghazi, but I guess also foretells the attack on the U.S. consulate last September where uh, Chris Stevens and the ambassador and three other Americans died. Where does de Villiers get his in- intelligence? Well, he starts off with each book, according to what he told me, um, in Paris, talking to um, 
uh, you know, people in the French intelligence service and related areas, maybe diplomats, whatever. He researches that way, finds out what's going on in the country. And, 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 and he actually, you know, he's been doing this for 50 years. So he keeps his eye on a whole range of countries. And when something interesting comes up, he, he kind of gets himself briefed. Then he goes to the country and he talks to, again, French diplomatic and, and, and intelligence people there. And many of these people he's known for, for decades and so they're willing to talk to him. And he's usually only in the country for a maximum two weeks. And then he comes back and puts it all together with remarkable speed. Are, are French intelligence officers so generous with, with their information with everybody? No, definitely not. I think it's partly, though, that it's fiction. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's less risky. But also because the characters in his books generally, oddly enough, are not French. And so, uh, you know, if they, if they give him information, it's going to come out of somebody else's mouth in the book, which gives him a bit of cover. Um, and also, though, he's, there is a kind of cult of Gerard de Villiers. All these guys have been reading him for years and years and years. And so, um, you know, I think it's kind of fun to become part of the story. So government officials say they don't read him, but they do. Has de Villiers ever gotten in hot water for how much he knows? No, not to my knowledge. Wow, that's incredible. Did you find that extraordinary? I sure did. And that's why I thought it was a, it was a fun story. Um, and, and again, you know, he, he's really kind of an unusual person. He's uh, nobody has uh, precisely the position he does in the sense that he's known these files for many, many, many years. Um, he's known the players and they feel that they can trust him. You, you met him at his apartment in Paris. What's he like? I found him very charming. He's, um, he's 83 years old, but he has a lot of energy and he seems sharp as a tack. He knows these countries very well. He's very interesting to talk to if you follow the Middle East. He's got strong opinions, somewhat cynical. It's funny, he's in, in many ways very French, and yet I think his style is, you know, it's very, when he talks, you know, uh, French intellectuals tend to have a lot of, uh, they're voluble, they go on and on about uh, ideas. He's very to the point. Mm. I mean, he, he's very factual, brisk, and a very nice, morbid sense of humor. He's also, though, a great raconteur. I mean, mm. he has all kinds of incredible stories about, um, you know, things he's encountered in his travels. Your conversation with him about his book, La Liste Hariri, The Hariri List, was pretty revealing. It's a, it's a novel that revolves around the assassination of former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri and the details of that plot, which uh, were a mystery to many people. How, are, how accurate were they in the book? Well, he always goes beyond what's factual and what he knows just to make it a better plot. But the elements that are factual that he puts in are pretty remarkable. I mean, he, you know, everybody has presumed for a long time that Syria was behind it, but the trouble was that the Syrians covered their tracks. The International Tribunal investigating it has, has, has made certain accusations. They were in the process of just starting to put these out when he published this book. And his information tracks with what they have, but he has an awful lot more about the way that Syria worked with Hezbollah to uh, put this together. Now, it's the kind of thing where much of this cannot actually be confirmed, but, you know, people who I have talked to in Lebanon who I believe know much more than they can actually publicly say have said the same kind of things that he wrote about. Wow. Um, I was kind of amazed to discover that not only do some diplomats read him, but that some of my people I've been friends with for years who just didn't happen to mention it have been reading de Villiers. These are mostly European journalists, but some of them said they literally treat it as kind of a, a briefing, you know, before they go to a country to get up to speed. Everybody's dirty little secret. Um, we, we heard earlier in the program from our reporter uh, on the latest in Mali in West Africa, a former French colony, and France seems to have now successfully routed Islamic militants there. It's a kind of story ripe for a de Villiers treatment if he hasn't done one yet. Uh, what do you think de Villiers' books say uh, about the close and even intimate ties still between France and its former colonies? 
Well, you guessed it. He's He's been there already. He, he, he published a book several months ago called Panique à Bamako. Oh, wow. um, I can't say that it actually anticipates what happened with the French military involvement in Mali, but it's certainly – all the themes are there. It's about uh, – you know, jihadi groups there. And um, it's actually more, of course, about the Americans and what they're trying to do, you know, behind the scenes maneuvering to sort of essentially find out what's going on with these Islamist groups and how to fight them. Uh, and for those it, ties, you know, I mean, between France and its former colonies, there, there's something, I don't know, it just feels some something very cozy there between de Villiers and all these countries out there. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, France has been very, very concerned about what was going on in Mali for long before the Americans got to that level of concern. And I think that's why he went. I mean, you, you can read in French newspapers I mean, ever since it happened last March that, uh, that the Islamists took over northern Mali. So I think that's why he went. And, and, and he had plenty of contacts there. It's really an issue he's been following for a long time. Has the CIA ever commented on uh, Malco Lange and uh, the, the, the series of books? Not to my knowledge. I, I did speak with um, a former CIA officer who knows de Villiers and got to be friends with him. I think it was early 90s in Paris. And um, it was kind of funny to, to – I asked this guy a series of questions about various people who were, you know, important or, you know, interesting. And he told me some stories and stuff. And on several occasions at the end of the story, I said, well, how did you meet that interesting person? Oh, de Villiers introduced me. So. <laughs> and this guy mentioned to me as I, I cited in the, in the story that he recommends de Villiers to um, uh, CIA analysts. Robert Wirth with the New York Times profiled the French spy novelist Gerard de Villiers. Thanks very much for telling us about him. It's a pleasure. Today's GeoQuiz destination could be a good one for a de Villiers novel. We're searching for a modern Libyan city with an ancient past. This city is located along the coast of the Mediterranean in the northwest corner of Libya. Less than a year and a half ago, it was engulfed by civil war. It was a recent bloody chapter in this Libyan city's long history. This 2,000-year-old city was once an important Roman trading post. Ships carrying olives, timber, and fish linked North Africa with Roman and Greek empires. The ruins of Roman temples in the city are some of the best preserved from the ancient world. So the city serves as a reminder to modern Libyans of their country's illustrious past. It is a reminder that, that they are not the sum total of the brutalities visited upon them by Gaddafi and previous to that Mussolini. We'll hear more about how Libyans regard their past and their future when we get the answer to the quiz later in the show. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ecuador's President Rafael Correa has been cracking down on the media. Coming up, an Ecuadorian journalist tells us the problem is the president's thin skin. Journalists, we question people, we question situations, and he, he just doesn't like that. He's not used to somebody, someone saying, you might be wrong. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, 
and WGBH Boston. Researchers in Britain say they've solved a 500-year-old mystery. They say the bones they unearthed from beneath a parking lot in the English city of Leicester are those of King Richard III. The medieval monarch died in the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. He was known to be buried in Leicester, though the exact location was lost to history. But some dogged research led to the skeleton, and DNA from a very distant living relative of the king led to a positive ID. Now, a lot of what we think we know about the old king comes from Shakespeare. His Richard III was a hunchbacked, scheming, brutal tyrant. To refresh our memory, here's Adam Long, a founding member of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, with a now updated version of the play. Here's the greatest story you ever heard about a king named Richard III, an ugly hunchback with stature diminished, rudely stamped, deformed and unfinished, started out as a prince who was almost unknown, not even hardly in line for the throne, and a big-headed brother made poor Richard glummer, turning discontented winter into glorious summer. Little Richard was bitter and fuming and steaming. The poisonous hunchback was plotting and scheming and seething and ready to pop his cork. He would steal the throne from that son of York. And so, in pursuit of satisfaction, Richard put his murderous plan into action, sent Clarence to the tower quite easily with a misunderstanding over the letter G. Then he wooed Lady Anne, Warwick's youngest daughter, though he'd killed her husband and killed her father. Two murderers carried out Richard's wishes, killed Clarence, who dreamed of jewels, skulls, pearls, and fishes. The crown was so close he could reach out and pluck it. Then old King Edward IV kicked the bucket, and soon poor Edward V was dead. That sneaky old Richard just lopped off his head. He beheaded Lord Rivers, Sir Thomas, Lord Grey... Heads were flying every which way. He killed Lord Hastings, I forgot to mention, when Hastings objected to his ascension. Then they made Richard king, and he was feeling groovy. It was worse than a Quentin Tarantino movie. He was killing children, killing all day. Lord Buckingham fled but got killed anyway. Somebody had to stop that hellion. Richmond invaded and led the rebellion. With his shining armor and his battle cry, some ghosts told Richard, despair and die. Richard fought like a fiend in the face of that force, and he called for a horse, his kingdom for a horse. But Richmond was mighty and killed Richard III. And that is the fate of all tyrants, you see. Richard lost his crown and his throne and his jester and wound up buried in a car park in Leicester. Thus, Richard spent his winter of discontent buried beneath three feet of cement. Mm -hmm. Very good. Remember the story now? That was Adam Long of the Reduced Shakespeare Company updating his version of Richard III. The discovery of the king's bones beneath that car park in Leicester could spark some historians to rethink his story. Anne Easter Smith is a novelist and self-proclaimed Ricardian. Richard III has appeared as a character in many of her novels. She says how he came to be buried in Leicester was quite dramatic. After the Battle of Bosworth, he was flung over a horse and taken back to Leicester, stark naked, all his wounds showing, and um, Henry gave him over to the monks of this church, and then they buried him, and then the monastery was destroyed. So we lost track of where Richard was really buried. Now, most of us know Richard III from uh, Shakespeare's drama, uh, where he's described as a hunchback with a withered arm who murders his nephews to usurp the throne. I is that a fair depiction of the king? Absolutely not. Shakespeare was writing for the Tudors, and he was borrowing... Tudor historians' accounts of Richard, who had necessarily written them to denigrate the king because Henry VII had really come in and taken his crown. They said he had been two years in his mother's womb and come out with a full head of hair and full head of teeth. And Shakespeare put that in his play. 
So you um, see Shakespeare's writing as kind of revisionist history for... Uh, it's uh, propaganda uh, for the Tudors mm. is what it is. The murders of the nephews, though, that's still unsolved, correct? Yes, and unfortunately, finding his bones is not going to help that in any way. We have no idea what happened to them. If they were murdered or if they were spirited away somewhere, we really don't know. So the skeleton seems to indicate that he actually had quite a severe case of scoliosis. So that kind of takes the hunchback thing away, but he still probably walked with a pretty substantial bent, right? What they're saying is that it would mean that he had one shoulder higher than the other, Mm. but that he was not deformed because a lot of people were writing about him and there was nothing mentioned about deformities. He was um, apparently quite good looking, not very tall, looked like his father, gray eyes and and, um, dark brown hair. And in fact, a portrait that was done of Richard around the end of the 15th century, today, when they were going to be restoring it, they were x-raying it to see, you know, where exactly lines were and things to restore it. Mm. And they found that somebody had painted on a hunchback. The original did not have one. So was that kind of the the visual artist version of Shakespeare working again for the Tudors, kind of propaganda? That's right. And of course, you know, Shakespeare was like our TV today, TV and movies. People flocked to see the plays and they just believed what they saw. It would be like somebody who'd never read anything about JFK's death going to see Oliver Stone's JFK and thinking, oh, this is truth. For you, Anne, what kind of king was Richard III? Not Shakespeare's view, but what kind of king was he? He reigned for only two years, but he was very concerned about the justice system, and he enacted a couple of statutes that still stand today, one of them to do with improving bail for people who didn't have a lot of money, Um, and he also took away taxes that Edward had brought in to fill his war chest. So now his bones can be laid to rest. Do you know where that's going to be? And will he get Catholic last rites, where he was a a Catholic king? Um, I think he's going to be buried in Leicester Cathedral. And I would think he would be given a, a Church of England burial. I just don't know that they would give him a Catholic burial there. Novelist Anne Easter Smith telling us about Richard III, her favorite obsession. Anne's upcoming novel, Royal Mistress, featuring King Richard, comes out in May. Anne, thanks very much. Very much my pleasure. Thank you, Marco. We have pictures and video of Richard III's bones and the parking lot excavation. Check those out. Plus, listen again to Adam Long's reduced Shakespeare version of Richard III. That's all at theworld.org. Here's another place where people discuss the past a lot, the Mideast. One of the most controversial issues there is the expansion of Jewish settlements. Critics say there's been a record amount of construction in the past two years. Palestinians in the West Bank have long protested that expansion, and now they're employing a new tactic in their protests. They're putting up hastily constructed encampments on land that they maintain as Palestinian. The Israeli government has wasted no time in taking them down. The world's Matthew Bell reports from the West Bank. On Saturday morning, dozens of Palestinians gathered on a hillside in the West Bank village of Burin. They were there to put up a cluster of tents and metal shacks. They named the encampment Al-Manatir. The Arabic word means something like guard post. That's a reference to the Jewish settlements up the hill from here and the frequent clashes between settlers and Palestinians. The new outpost didn't last very long, though. Palestinians say Jewish settlers showed up and started throwing rocks. Then Israeli police and soldiers arrived, and they used sound grenades, tear gas, and pepper spray to disperse the protesters. 
The military says Palestinians threw stones at Israeli soldiers. Several were arrested, and the tent camp was dismantled. Walid Eid accompanied me on a visit to the site this morning. He's a 61-year-old sheep herder from Burdin. He took part in the tent protest. Yes, he says, the Israelis came and demolished the tents. But at least we had a feeling of success, he says, for about two hours. Another villager, a 40-year-old nurse named Hassan Imran, tells me Palestinians need to continue mounting protests like this one. This is our land, he says, and we have to stop the settlers from encroaching on our village. This protest was a victory. The tent protest in Burin was the fourth in a recent string of similar demonstrations. Palestinian politician and activist Mustafa Barghouti says they're aimed at stopping the expansion of West Bank settlements and rescuing the chance for establishing a Palestinian state. So we decided that instead of being always reactive to what the army does and the settlers do, we should be proactive and build villages on our own land, privately owned Palestinian land. And we started in Babi Shams, in the area called Iwan, around Jerusalem. And they came and kicked us out. So our slogan was, if they destroy a village, we'll build another one, and another one, and another one, till we are free of this system of discrimination. In a sense, they're taking a page out of the playbook of the Jewish settlers themselves. Settlers have built dozens of so-called illegal outposts across the West Bank, but Barghouti doesn't like the comparison. Because you cannot compare between somebody who is stealing a land of somebody else and building on it, and a person who is building on his own land. Uh, These are two completely different methods. But by being proactive, we are countering the Israeli facts on the ground with Palestinian facts on the ground. But how far will these new protests go? None of them has managed to create long-lasting facts on the ground, though they have generated a lot of media attention. Nathan Thrall is an analyst of Palestinian politics with the International Crisis Group. He says the tactic is a smart public relations move. I expect that more of these will pop up across the West Bank. But I also think that we should be somewhat cautious about stating that their consequences would be far-reaching. Thrall says the demonstrations don't seem to have caught on with the Palestinian public in general, at least not yet. And he adds that the Palestinian Authority is ambivalent about supporting protests that could spark violence. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah, in the West Bank. More than a year after the Libyan revolution, Libyans are building a new nation. But the challenges are everywhere as the government struggles to assert control. Militias remain in power in many cities, and immigrants are pouring in across its borders. Journalist Robert Draper traveled to Libya for National Geographic. You write in your piece that for decades Libyans lived under a dictator who twisted their past. Now they must imagine their future. Tell us about a couple of people who are moving forward. You met a 31-year-old woman who was an emergency room surgeon. Sure. That woman's name is Maryam Eshtiwi. She lives in Benghazi. Uh, She's a surgeon at Al-Jala Hospital. She's a traditional Muslim woman. Uh, When she wanted to become a surgeon, a lot of the uh, male physicians uh, treated her rather rudely. Her own parents thought that that wasn't a good idea for a woman, but uh, she nonetheless plowed on and was really one of the heroes of the revolution because uh, she uh, saved so many lives, both of uh, revolutionaries, of rebels, and of Gaddafi loyalists. The unfortunate aftermath of that is that uh, now um, Dr. Eshtiwi is um, an expert in gunshot wounds, as she told me. There was Mm. a time in the past when she saw one or two of those a year, and now she sees them uh, several times a week. What does she want uh, Libya to become? 
She wants it to be a democracy. Uh, she, under uh, the Gaddafi regime, was really ashamed of her country, felt that, that uh, uh, the country was cut off from the rest of the world because, indeed, Gaddafi sought to do just that. Um, she, like so many other people that I met, Marco, when I, during the month that I was in Libya, would ask me, you know, where are you from? And when I would say with some hesitation, um, the United States, uh, they would reply, um, please tell your president, thank you so much. Uh, mm. uh, America and NATO saved our lives. So uh, they, they very much want to rejoin the rest of the world, the world across the Mediterranean that had been very much a part of Libya's world before Gaddafi came along. You also met the police chief in the city of Misrata, and the police chief actually fought with the rebels to overthrow Gaddafi. How does he see the future? Well, you're referring to Omar Albera, who mm. is an interesting case, an individual who uh, had been in essence, a Gaddafi policeman, then took off his uniform and fought in the revolution next to, uh, side by side with people that he himself had jailed, is now the chief of police and is trying to bring a measure of respectability to a law enforcement organization that was associated with corruption and other unfortunate attributes of the Gaddafi regime. Obera's main concern um, has to do with stability. That is to say, there is none. The revolution was fought by local people who'd never fired guns before. Now they have the guns and they don't want to give them up. They're known as militias now. And uh, Albera uh, readily conceded to me that he, the chief of police, is really not uh, the guy in charge, nor is the mayor of, of Misrata. But instead, it's the militias who have the guns and thus the power. And so this is, of course, the problem with Libya today, that because there aren't any law enforcement institutions, extremist groups, Gaddafi loyalists and the like, can come across the border and foment the kind of violence that we unfortunately saw swallow up by Ambassador Stevens. Mm. Was there a thread that connects the lives of these Libyans you interviewed? Yeah, I think the thread is that of Libya writ large, Marco, which is that, you know, after 42 years under a dictatorship led by a man who was reconfiguring history to suit his own purposes, all of these individuals with whom I spoke and Libyans writ large are asking themselves, what do we do now? What does it mean to be a Libyan? And uh, some of the answer to that, actually, you can find by uh, wandering around to places that most Libyans themselves have not seen along the coast, uh, the glorious uh, Roman ruins in Sabratha and Leptis Magna, mm. or the Greek ruins all the way to the east in, in Cyrene. What these indicate is that Libya had for a long time been uh, partnered with uh, European countries across the Mediterranean. And uh, those Mediterranean influences persist in, in the culture and the food they eat, the clothes they wear. It is, a, again, a reminder as you, as you walk through Leptis Magna and Sabratha of uh, not only the um, commercial glory and the architectural magnificence of an earlier time, but it's also a reminder that Libya was not always cut off the way that um, Gaddafi severed them from the rest of the world, and they're eager to rejoin it. They just don't know how. Robert, thank you very much. My pleasure, Marco. Robert Draper traveled to Libya for National Geographic. His story, The New Old Libya, appears in this month's issue of the magazine. You can see photographs from that story at theworld.org. And by the way, the Libyan city of Sabratha, with its 2,000-year-old Roman ruins, is the answer to our geoquiz. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Ecuador, President Rafael Correa is heavily favored to win a third term in the February 17th election there. But if he does, it could mean four more years of trouble for the Ecuadorian media. Correa has been targeting TV, radio, and newspapers with lawsuits, fines, and insults. All this from a president who offered political asylum to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in the interests of freedom of expression. John Otis reports from Quito. 
Journalist Miguel Ribadaneda heads one of Ecuador's largest radio stations. Y si comparo entre ese gobierno militar y otros... Ribadaneda tells me there was more press freedom under Ecuador's military dictatorship in the 1970s than there is today under the democratically elected government of Rafael Correa. This government is the worst, he says. Since he was first elected in 2006, President Correa has complained about sloppy, unprofessional journalism. He claims many of the country's newspapers, TV and radio stations are dominated by corrupt elites who try to undermine his left-wing government. Patricio Bariga is a government spokesman. Bariga says that many in the media have crossed the line into political activism, and that has prompted a political response from the president. Correa is an ally of Hugo Chavez, Venezuela's ailing president, who's clashed with the Venezuelan media during his 14 years in power. But critics say Correa has moved even faster than Chavez to muzzle the press. Correa's government has shut down more than a dozen radio stations. TV stations are often forced to broadcast government propaganda. When a Quito magazine published an editorial that Correa didn't like, it was fined $80,000. Meanwhile, the president has instructed his ministers to speak only to state-run outlets like Radio Ecuador. Correa often uses this megaphone to savage independent journalists. That's Correa ripping up a newspaper in front of a delighted audience. We must demand that the corrupt media stop trying to trick us. Under our revolution, you, the people, are in charge, and we will not bow down to this scoundrel. Correa's campaign has turned many here against the media. Last year, there were 173 acts of aggression against journalists, including more than a dozen physical attacks and threats. That's a 50% jump from the year before. Jose Velasquez, the news manager at the private Teleamazonas TV station, says lawsuits against the media are also on the rise. So what happens is that since the president is so aggressive, with the journalists, and uh, that empowers a lot of people. Then people will say, yeah, 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 you are corrupt. So I'm going to sue you too. So now you have a pile of lawsuits on your desk. Yes, at least two or three per month. Velasquez says part of the problem is that Correa is thin-skinned. He doesn't take criticism well. I mean, journalists, we question people, we question situations, and he, he just doesn't like that. He's not used to somebody, someone saying, you might be wrong. The media appear to have become Correa's whipping boy. So, to avoid the government's wrath, many media outlets refrain from publishing hard-hitting stories. We are seeing now a movement towards self-censorship. Eric Sampson works for the press freedom group Reporters Without Borders. He says even mundane subjects are sometimes off-limits. Weeks ago, this channel chose not to talk about bulls because the bullfighting was prohibited. And they said, we don't want any problem with the government. They are against the bullfighting, so we are not going to talk about that. El Comercio has been Ecuador's most influential newspaper since it began printing in 1906. But even here, journalists have grown gun-shy. 
Due to the fear of lawsuits, reporter Santiago Seas says every word that goes into the paper comes under extra scrutiny. And that, he says, has produced the only upside to Korea's war against the press. It has forced Ecuadorian journalists to become more thorough and accurate. For The World, I'm John Otis, Quito, Ecuador. Music from Ecuador's neighbor, Colombia, ends the show today. Here's Tom Schnabel of KCRW. There is a great new collection on the Analog Africa label, a collection of reissues called Diablos del Ritmo, the Devils of Rhythm. The Colombian Melting Pot 1960 to 1985 is the subtitle of it, and it is a sensational and really eclectic collection. This one is from an Afro-Colombian group called Waganda Kenya. It's called El Catarete. It has really strong energy and drive and a very powerful lead singer as well. from Waganda, Kenya, from Diablos del Ritmo. Colombia is such a melting pot. This new two-CD set has the Colombian version of Nigerian Afrobeat, which is called Champeta, and then there's Caribbean funk, salsa, cumbia, and regional styles like cumbiamba, terapia, and mapale. Here is another nice cut from the collection, and it is by Abelardo Carbono, and it's called Quiera Mi Gente, or I Want My People. It is a fast-paced romp. That was a cut by Abelardo Carbono called Quiero Mi Gente, I Want My People. Most of this material was mined by the founder of uh, Analog Africa, a guy named Sami Ben Redjeb. He went to Barranquilla, the so-called Golden Gate of Colombia, to mine 34 musical treasures on the two-CD set, mostly from the vaults of Discos Tropical, which was based in Barranquilla, Colombia. Let's conclude with a track by Roberto de la Barrera, Isom Piano. It's a fast cumbia salsa that surely kept a lot of sweaty bodies happily moving on the dance floors. Need a little more than that to sweat. As Tom mentioned, the CD collection is Diablos de Ritmo, the Colombian melting pot. Tom Schnabel chooses global music for us from KCRW in Santa Monica. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
the World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.